We're uh, studying the church, Jesus' church, how the church should operate, um, how we should be living our faith in the community, the church community, and uh, invite you again to open to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We're going to begin by reading that text again. So much beautiful illustration of how the Holy Spirit works in a dynamic community and some lessons that we can glean and learn from them as well. I do ask you to open your Bibles and look at the Bible as we're preaching. We want you to see and study and learn that your faith would rest on the words of God, not on the hype of the preacher, but you will see for yourself God's Word and what it says, what God would have you to do, the models, both negative models and positive models that are in Scripture. Start at verse 42, you follow along. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. With a community as vibrant and genuine and true and loving as this, it's no wonder Christianity moved from one city to thousands of cities. It's no wonder the truth of this lived out in the lives of people became evident to people of all cultures and all nationalities. They could see this is truth lived out in community. This is faith in community, and it works, and it's real, and it's genuine. And we need to realize how important it is that the declaration and proclamation of the Word of God about Jesus is backed up by people who really live what it is that they claim to believe. What we have here is a dynamic church. How did they get the dynamic? The answer is the coming of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to ask the Holy Spirit to come down from heaven anymore. I know there are people that do that. Stop doing that. The Holy Spirit has already arrived. He's come in full power. He created a spirit-filled group of believers, a church. They were learning together. They were students. They loved studying. They loved getting into the Word of God, listening to apostolic doctrine. They were tangibly loving one another. They were witnessing, fellowshipping, worshiping, giving. All of those are here. We would all desire every local church to be more like this, to have more of these attributes. The interpretive caution I gave last time is to remember that this is biblical history. This is not divine command. This is not written so that every local church will do everything exactly the way that we see here. Indeed, the local churches in the New Testament themselves did not. Rather, it's description, description of the way it was. And that description also speaks to us and helps us to understand some things. Really, most of the book of Acts is description, not prescription. But when we join inspired Biblical history to inspired New Testament instruction about Christian living, we glean from that a model in some ways, and then we can gain applications for our own setting and situation. And that's what in this series we're attempting to do, to make correct applications from these uh, descriptions that were given. Now, last time we covered three descriptions with some appropriate applications. Just for review, description number one, 
They were devoted to doctrine. We saw that at the beginning of verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves. First thing that's stated is to the apostles' teaching. Apostles were the teachers. They taught doctrine about Christ, about the Christian life, about God, about salvation. They continued the teaching ministry of Jesus. Jesus was a teacher. He taught them. Jesus was still teaching them through his chosen apostles, teaching his congregation, wanting them to learn the will of God, wanting them to learn who God was, wanting them to understand things. Their minds needed to be changed and taught. And so a true Christian church is always a bunch of learners, a bunch of students. We're always students in God's church, and we see that. We see that it's very appropriate to apply this because you go to the rest of the New Testament and it talks about the importance of sound doctrine driving forward everything else that a church does. Description number two is they were devoted to the fellowship. This is the second thing they were devoted to, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. The word and there shows that they're both, they're being devoted to both the doctrine and to the fellowship. The fellowship meaning the people. Koinonia fellowship means partnership. It means sharing. We share in the actions, the common interests, all those kinds of things that bond us together in Christ. Fellowship is an all-encompassing term. It involves everything we're doing, including what we're doing right now, when we serve together, when we witness together, when we sing together, when we learn together, when we help each other. All of that is under the umbrella of fellowship. It really refers to the people in community and living in all aspects of that community. So they were dedicated to the community. They were dedicated to the people and the fellowship that comes from that. Those are the two main things they were dedicated to. Some people read that verse too quickly and and see four things they were dedicated to, but the next two are descriptive of the fellowship. That's why it's not joined with an and. The breaking of bread and the prayers flesh out the fellowship. And that's the third description. They did indeed break bread together. Verse 42 still. And again, I say notice there's no and with this one. This one and the next one are descriptions of what Luke meant by they were dedicated to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. It was two things they were dedicated to, but this is, these are two prominent things that expressed the life of fellowship. The breaking of bread, of course, refers not just to eating any meal, but the breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, at a real supper, told them to continue to keep the ordinance of the Lord's Supper until he returned. It was symbolic, but it was also done in community, and it was symbolic of the community and their reliance in community to their Lord Jesus Christ. They broke his bread, so to say, which was symbolic of his body. The Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances Jesus commanded the church to practice. It symbolized that death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It symbolized the forgiveness of sins. It symbolized their dependence upon Christ, that they had to take the elements into themselves in order to show that they had no life in themselves, but Christ imparted life to them. So regular practice of the Lord's Supper. In that time, it was done actually in a mealtime. Now we don't have it at a mealtime, but it's still the same symbolism that we come together to a table, so to say. We're all part of one family. We remember the Lord Jesus and we celebrate that Lord's Supper together. They probably did it every single week and maybe even more often to begin with. Over time in church history, it was practiced at different intervals. But the key was it was regularly done and it was done so that we remember the Lord Jesus. Today we come to the fourth description of the community. This is new stuff. The fourth description is they practiced corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. We're still in verse 42. It says, and to prayer. Do you see that? And to prayer. The fellowship is the breaking of bread and 
to prayer. Now, I want you to understand that literally, and if you have a good study Bible, you'll see this. It literally means they were committed to the prayers. Prayer is actually plural, and there is the Greek article along with it. It means some definite time of prayer, the prayers. Not just prayer in general, like you might be dedicated at home to pray, but they were dedicated to the formal times when the community gathered together to pray, many of them likely in the temple. So I repeat, I'm sure they prayed individually. Some of them probably had stronger prayer lives than others, and this, but this is not referring to that. It's referring to public prayer. John Calvin wrote, it's cert- it is certain that he speaketh of public prayer. These believers, in other words, prayed together. You say, is that important for a community of believers? Yes, it was. It was the natural expression of what they would do. It was not good enough that they prayed at home. They came out to pray together. And Luke highlights that here. If you glance forward to chapter 3 and verse 1, it tells us that they were in the temple for the hour of prayer. They would go up the steps of the temple. The temple mount was an extremely large area, still is today. And um, it could house tens of thousands of people. And they would go up there, up from the steps in Jerusalem, the city, up to the temple, and they would have their hour of prayer. The temple, of course, was a favorite place of meeting for the unbelieving Jews or for the Jews who were not believers in Jesus. It was central for them. But it was also central to the Christian community. They weren't even called Christian at this point in time. They just were labeled the way. They believed they were still Jews and faithful Jews. They were in Jerusalem as Jews. They were ethnic Jews. They were going up to the temple of the Jews in order to pray to their God. It was a prominent area. It was in the center of the city. It was the largest place in the city, the most prominent. And of course, their whole nation was centered around God. And so it was the best place to go to meet and to pray. As we go throughout the book of Acts, we have to keep in mind, as we see these early chapters, especially these were all ethnic Jews, every last one of them. The Jews still expressed their faith in Yeshua in the form of Judaism. They viewed themselves as the true remnant within the nation of Israel, which had not embraced their king. Though their king had come and given them the signs of the kingdom, those miracles Jesus did were not just to point to certain truths about him, but also to truths about the fact that he was a king and there was a kingdom. He did the miracles that would be in that thousand-year reign of Christ. And he demonstrated that so they would know the king has arrived. He's demonstrating the miracles of that kingdom, but they had not embraced him because of their hardness of heart. But they were still Jews. They were still in the nation of Israel and in Jerusalem. And this is how they viewed and understood their Christianity, their faith. They were followers of the true Messiah King. They were convinced he was the king. The others had missed it. They had not. We saw back in Acts chapter 1, just to bring in a little bit of the history we covered, that the disciples were still waiting for the arrival of the Jewish kingdom. They'd walked with Christ, they'd listened to his parables of the kingdom, they'd listened to him teach about the kingdom. He had taught them for 40 days about the kingdom. They still had a nationalistic expectation that God would restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel. And they were correct about that. And they asked Jesus and asked one, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus did not contradict that their expectation of a kingdom was correct. He simply said, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. There will come a kingdom. Everything God said will come literally true. It just wasn't time then, and they weren't supposed to know the times. And in the meantime, they were to get busy in the church witnessing for the king. 
there will come a time when the full Jewish kingdom will be manifest on earth. Jesus will receive his full glory as the second Adam and as the son of David on his throne on earth, as he labels it his throne. It's just not now. Now they were to be busy witnessing for the Jewish king who is sitting at the right hand of God's throne in the heavens, awaiting the time when he was to come. If you think about it, this theme of the kingdom of God really encompasses Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. If anyone ever asks you, what is the entire Bible really about? What's the theme of the whole Bible? It's really about the kingdom of God in all of its different layers and levels and manifestations. We're in the kingdom in a sense that we're spiritually part of the kingdom of Jesus now. We've confessed him as our king. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But the full manifestation of that kingdom is to come down to earth. Pray that thy kingdom come and thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. God is going to bring the full kingdom down to earth. And we're going to see it. We're going to be part of it. And so will Israel. But though these communal prayers were with Jews and probably sounded somewhat Jewish in the way that they prayed, they also had a distinct Christian flavor to them. Remember, they weren't even called Christian this early, but they had a Christian flavor. They had a flavor that was oriented towards Jesus the King. They understood what to pray for and how to pray for. And that understanding was molded both by the Old Testament that they had grown up with and now the teachings of Jesus that were coming to them through these apostles. In in fact, the teaching of the apostles led to their knowledge about how to pray when they gathered together. They had to first learn, they had to be students, and then they could go and they could pray rightly. And that is what Luke is talking about here. Not the Jewish prayers of the Jewish people, but the believers in Jesus going up into the temple area, gathered together in the hundreds or in the thousands by now, up there in the temple mount, praying together out loud in public, even as a group. Now, even though this referred to formal communal prayers, I don't want you to think that the way that they prayed was rote or was mindless or was liturgical. That's not what is in mind here. Sometimes when Christian denominations speak of group prayers, they mean formal prayers, and then they usually mean some kind of something that's written out and not spontaneous. It then can become, it's not always that way, but it can become stiff and not heartfelt, and it becomes dry and liturgical. Don't picture that. That's not how they were praying. They're not just standing around the temple and all reciting the Lord's Prayer together. The Lord didn't give the Lord's Prayer for us to recite. Jesus never had the disciples recite the Lord's Prayer with him. A lot of people misunderstand that. He gave that as a model prayer. He said, this is the way you ought to pray. He himself never even prayed the prayer. None of the disciples, as far as we know, sat and recited the prayer. But they did use it as a model These are the kinds of things to pray for, the order in which we do. These are the things that are on God's heart and mind, and it's a teaching prayer. In fact, Jesus instructed his disciples back in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 14, that they should never use rote and meaningless prayer. A lot of words, a lot of gibberish. Talking more and having more words doesn't mean God's going to answer you. The Gentiles did that. They would talk on and on and on and on. They thought if they got fervent and loud that finally their prayers would be answered. You see Buddhists do that with their little Buddhist wheels today. The more words you can just whip out, maybe the better chance that that something out there will listen to you or karma will land on you. A few knowledgeable words of faith to God is what God would respond to. You have to know to pray the right thing. 
And so formal liturgy is not at all in view here. But strong commitment to fresh and vibrant group prayers, probably led by the men among them. We know that Jesus established men as the leaders of his church, and Paul in establishing the churches when it came time for the public prayer times in 1 Timothy 2.8. He said, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. In other words, stand in front of the people, lift up your hands and pray, The Jewish people would do that because it showed how God would fulfill their hands with their need. Pray in front of the people. Don't turn your hands into fists where you fight with one another, but pray and lift up your hands together. That's what men in leadership in God's church are to do. This community agreed about the kinds of things to pray for, to advance the kingdom message of Jesus. When we pray in group, we should be praying for the same things because it should have in our heart that these are the things that God wants to accomplish. God wants to build his kingdom. And so since God is doing that, we shouldn't be praying off for all or just our individual prayers. We should be coming together and reminding ourselves, you may have some things you're praying about. That's fine. You could pray for those things. But the main things we should be praying about are the things that God is doing through his community in building his church from city to city and from nation to nation. That should be our concern. That's where the focus of our prayer should be. should be praying for the building up of God's kingdom, the spreading of God's kingdom, spiritually speaking, through the church. We listen to apostolic doctrine. We see what is important to Christ. Then we pray for it, and we pray for it in unison. Dr. MacArthur quotes about this. He says, The first fellowship was eagerly and persistently engaged in the critical duty of prayer. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Sadly, prayer is much neglected in the church today. Programs or the testimonies of the rich and famous draw large crowds. Prayer meetings, on the other hand, attract only the faithful few. That is undoubtedly the reason for much of the weakness in the contemporary church, end quote. Let's keep encouraging one another. When you hear about the prayer meeting, you think it's just another meeting. It is not. There's four of those that we plan a year, and it really would be a great application for you to realize how important it is for us to be praying together and fervently asking God to do great things. We can make this application because we know of the importance of prayer, even corporate prayer from other places. Jesus made great prayer promises to his people. He said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, John fourteen thirteen. What an important promise in the absence of Jesus. He's not here, but he said, ask in my name and I will hear it and I will answer and I will do that. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. That was not written just for pastors and leaders, but for the whole congregation. Be devoted to prayer. One of the benefits of corporate prayer is you learn how to pray by listening to others. You realize many of your prayers are selfish. Many of your prayers are kind of narrow. Many of your prayers are sort of just targeted on the same kind of things as you're living your life. It snaps you back into community and says, well, what are are we even here? We're the church of Jesus. And Jesus is above and he's ruling and he's manifesting his presence through the church and he's spreading his word through the church and he wants this to succeed. He wants this to grow. He wants this to be healthy. He wants us to endure trial. He wants us to learn his word more accurately. And so we need to come together and listen to what the person next to me is praying and how they're praying it and that that rubs off on me and then I learn how to pray better. That's some of the value of corporate prayer. 
But the other value is when God's people in unison agree on something, they all are together and their faith is kind of coalesced into this is what we need to ask God to do, then he does it. And we've seen him do that in providing us a facility. I know we haven't seen it in the sense that we're in it, but it is paid for. It is ours now. And that's pretty difficult when you realize it was near $5 million for a church like ours to do that while paying for what we are doing at the same time. Pretty amazing answer to prayer. But there's so much more that God can do. There's so much more he can open up. There's so many more of you he can raise up. It takes that concentrated prayer of, of the corporate body of Christ asking for things that God has said to ask for, for us to see it happen. We should be dedicated to that and excited when we get to come together in prayer. Prayer time is fellowship time. That's what Luke is saying here as well. So that's the fourth description. Now we move on to the fifth, and that's in verse 43. Yes, we're in verse 43. And that is just simply this. The characteristic is divine awe. This congregation, this church, was, had a sense or a feeling of divine awe in it. And you see that in verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. You see, there's a sense of awe. What is awe? The word is phobos. It normally is translated fear. You know, you hear phobia. We get the word phobia from that. Phobos, fear. There was a sense of fear in the community. The everyone there refers to all the others around the church observing the church. Notice everyone is in contrast with all those who believe in verse 44. So everyone's talking about the whole group of Jews in Jerusalem, and then there are those who believe. That's the church. Luke seems to be purposely saying it includes all of the people in Jerusalem. Many besides the believers also had some sense of awe. They were not yet believers, but there was some sense that there was an amazing thing going on in this city. And it would create... These miracles in particular would create wonder and would create fear among even those who not believe. Jesus did that. When Jesus did his miracles, often the result was not saving faith, but there was at least this awe, this amazement. And that's the effect that miracles were meant to have. What are miracles? Miracles are a display of divine power, an unusual display of divine power, that point to some biblical truth. That's why they're also called signs. They're miracles. That means powers. And then the display of power is a sign that points to some truth. But then there's another word that is also used of these miracles. And that is they're sometimes called wonders. And that's because of the effect they leave on the people that see them. They leave people in wonder or in awe. They see the display of power. They realize the truth that it means. And it leads them to, to drop their jaws and their eyes bug out and their breath stops. And they realize this is amazing. We see that effect when Jesus raised someone from the dead in Luke seven sixteen. It says fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. That's the effect that a miracle was supposed to have. Same thing happens with the apostolic miracles in the book of Acts. As we would move forward in Acts 5 and verse 5 later, we read that Ananias, who had lied to the Holy Spirit, you may remember, fell down dead and breathed his last. That was in front of the whole church because of the lie he told. And it says, great fear came over all who heard of it. Not just those who saw it, but everyone who heard it. Wow, someone came in there, lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck him and his wife dead. And that just had ripple effects. 
The miracles coupled with the preaching and the body that was there brought a sense of divine fear and awe. Please notice that the miracles were taking place, and it specifies it here very clearly, through who? The apostles. The apostles only. It's the apostles who were doing the miracles, not all the believers. The miracles were meant to authenticate the apostles as the leaders of the church, as providing the doctrine of Christ, which was just mentioned in verse 42. It says they were dedicating themselves to the apostles' doctrine, and then miracles were happening through the hands of the apostles. Make that connection. That's the connection you're supposed to make. Jesus was authenticating who were his truly chosen spokespeople. Who were the ones that were allowed to speak for him? The answer was given through the miracles. The miracles came through the hands of the apostles. It was Jesus' way of saying, listen to them because I'm authenticating them through powers. People say that everyone should be doing you know, wonders and signs today. That's just so wrong. It's not reading what the Holy Spirit did even in the beginning. Peter just made mention in his sermon of this very thing going on in the life of Jesus. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Peter was preaching, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. There they are. Powers and awe and pointing the truth, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Why did God do miracles through Jesus? Answer, God was authenticating Jesus to the people of Israel as their Messiah. Earlier in Jesus' ministry in John 7, 31, it says, but many of the crowd believed in Jesus and they were saying, listen to what they concluded. When the Messiah comes, he will not perform more signs than this man does, will he? In other words, can you really expect somebody to come along and do more miracles than Jesus did? Come on, he has to be the Messiah. The miracles authenticated him to the Jews. Signs authenticated Christ. Now Jesus is gone. What is the purpose of the signs? To authenticate Jesus' spokesperson, the apostles. That's why it's the apostles who are doing the miracles. When the apostles did the miracles, the attention went to the apostles, and then the apostles taught them the doctrine and the people knew that doctrine is true. Listen to that. That, by the way, is just a continuation of what happened in the Old Testament. When a prophet came along after the time of Moses, and the people wanted to know, is he really speaking of God or is he telling a lie? The answer was, well, what sign did he perform? If he didn't perform a sign, they didn't have to believe in him. It was required of the prophet perform a sign. Sometimes they predicted the future. Sometimes they did a miracle. It was something only God could do, and it authenticated him. And, and Satan sometimes could use signs, and so there was another test that was thrown in there as well. And it said, well, if he does the sign and it comes true, but what he says contradicts what Moses said, he's not from God. Because any prophet prophet who comes along later is not going to contradict the earlier prophets. He's not going to change the prophecies. Any prophet that comes along and changes the prophecies is not of God. By the way, Muhammad fulfilled neither of those requirements as a prophet, right? He didn't do any sign, and what he said contradicted what was already written. And he had the convenient lie, well, the Christians and the Jews changed the Bible. How convenient. Because what you're saying doesn't fit with what they said. But these are true prophets. All of the apostles were prophets. And they're proclaiming the word of God and they're being authenticated by genuine miracles. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 12 and following, we learned that the apostles had unique qualifications. 
They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' entire ministry and primarily his resurrection from the dead. When Paul was trying to convince everyone he indeed was an apostle, he said in 1 Corinthians, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Christ Jesus our Lord? If a man had not seen physically Jesus Christ risen from the dead, he was not even qualified to be an apostle. How could anyone today say they're an apostle? How could anyone last century say they're an apostle? Doesn't make any sense at all. And Jesus gave these apostles a unique role with unique authority in the church. They spoke as prophets, infallible truth. And so God was testifying toward them. Actually, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 3, it confirms that miracles were not done by just anybody. They were designed to authenticate the apostles. In Acts 14.3, it says, Paul and Barnabas spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. By their hands. Apostolic doctrine authenticated here now to the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 12, it says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. That same triad of description. In Hebrews chapter 2, and in verse 4, it says, God also testifying with them, that was the eyewitnesses, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Please notice, the miracles were not taking place through the others. The miracles were taking place through the apostles. Again, Acts chapter 5, 11 through 13, it says, Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with the apostles. The people held them in high esteem. They were a unique group. They had unique power. They had unique authority. It's not repeatable. They didn't pass it on to anybody. The Pope is not an apostle. Nobody today is an apostle. They have that name in front of them. It doesn't matter. They're not an apostle. The only exception to other people working these miracles were when the apostles directly laid hands on them as their servants and those men went out and then they were empowered to do those miracles because the apostles laid their hands on them. People today claim to do signs and miracles. They don't, they don't, first of all. There's nothing like what they perform here. A lot of it is shenanigans and smoke and mirrors and deception and hype and emotion. They're false claims. But what we need to know is even if a sign or a miracle like that happened, it would not be from an apostle because an apostle's first century. The last apostle to die was John, and he died somewhere around 96 A.D., So we are not meant to directly imitate this part of what we have read. This is description. You should not be expecting me to heal all your diseases. You should not be expecting any of the elders to be able to perform miracles of nature. That's not the point. And when when another church says, well, we have that and you don't, don't believe them. They don't have that. A lot of it is just, uh, it's just, it's deception. And it's, it's hurtful to the faith. It's not building up the faith. However, I would say this, that there should be among the people of God a sense of awe. Would you agree with that? We, we could easily cross-reference to the Psalms and other places and realize that a reverence for God, not, not a hype, not, not a light show, 
Not, not theater. That's not why we gather. We gather together to see God. We, we gather together to perceive the working and the presence of God. We gather together to hear the mighty word of God. There should be a sense of reverence in our worship services. There should be a sense that God is working in our community throughout the week, that prayers are being answered, that God is moving, that, that, that sin is being overcome, that people are being witnessed to. There should be that sense of awe that is here. It shouldn't just be, well, we did our little religious duty and went home. Ho-hum, we're kind of have our routines down. There should be a sense that God is at work in community and we should be asking God to work powerfully in our community. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 exhorts all of us, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a what? Consuming fire. Especially during worship times, we should be Lifting up the mighty name of God and getting a sense of heaven as heaven is brought low to us as we sense God's presence with us. Now, the sixth description here that we move on to is they demonstrated unity. They demonstrated unity. And this is really important. Focus on the first part of verse 44 uh, first there. It says in verse 44, and all those who had believed. So that's the church, right? Were together, were together and had all things in common. They were together. Let's just stop with that. They demonstrated their unity. This church had demonstrated unity. And if you join that with verse 46, you could see verse 44 says they were together and then they were physically together there in Jerusalem. And then verse 46 tells us they were daily together in the temple, probably the only place that could have all of them. Remember, there were 3,000 that were saved, and then we find out they're day by day God is adding to their number. So now we're up to 3,000, whatever, 3,500, and then we get to 4,000, and it's growing. There was no little building there in Jerusalem that could have all of them together. So the only real place they could be physically in the same place would be in the temple. So they were going daily to the temple, and they were together. They were physically together. Boy, there's such a blessing to be physically together with other believers. There's something that the iPhone can't quite do for you. There's something that having a distant relation, it's not quite the same thing, is it? But here they are together. The Expositor's Bible Commentary notes, As Jews who were Christians, and also Christians who were Jews, they not only considered Jerusalem to be their city, but continued to regard the temple as their sanctuary. So in the temple, they had a facility large enough to hold all of them. This was a mega church, and, and they needed a facility that would hold all of them, and that facility was the temple. Now, verse 46, if you look at it, it also tells us that they had fellowship from house to house. Do you see that? It tells us they were sharing their meals together and breaking bread. They were not doing that in the temple. They were doing that in house to house. They were having their meals and doing the Lord's Supper house to house because they didn't have a place where they could all sit at the same table. As we said before, the Lord's Supper was a meal and it was joined, you know, joined with a meal at this early date. These meals that they had in their homes were their normal family meals. They were just probably substantial meals. I'm sure that these Jews practiced the hospitality that was well-known of Israelites, and that is that they were generous with their food for their guests. Generosity spoke of the value of their guests. They gave lavishly to those who came to their home. And you can apply that. You can use your home 
You can use your home in ministry. You can apply this by just showing hospitality and being generous with those who come over to your home, no matter the size of your home. They considered having the people in their home as part of the fellowship. It was part of that life, that dynamic of the community. Our faith has lived in community, not just now when we can all gather on the same roof in a room big enough, but then you go off to your home and some of them come to your home and some go to your home and the fellowship continues. And that's, that's a blessing. That's part of living the faith in community. We should be having each other in our homes. That's what they were doing. They were daily conversing with one another. They were reclining around a table, maybe reviewing some of the things they learned. Maybe sometimes just telling some jokes, enjoying each other, getting to know one another. Maybe talking about somebody that they got to witness to, enjoying the company of each other, giving parenting advice. All those kinds of things that happen in community. They were doing, I think, what 1 Peter 4 9 exhorts us to do. Be hospitable toward one another without complaint. Why do you think he had to add without complaint? Because people show up uninvited, right? Without complaint. Now they show up to your house and you're like, ah, they're the brethren. What do you do at that point in time? Well, you try to be gracious and you try to be generous with them, right? Without complaint. What's neat here is they wanted to be together physically. They wanted to be with one another. Listen, as independent Americans, we really need to listen to this. Don't you think? These were birds of a feather. And so they, you know, the rest of it, stuck together. Each believer was associated with the others. There were no cliques. There might have been small groups. That's not a clique. A clique is, well, we're not allowing you over in our little small group within it. That's what a clique is. There was none of that. There was no elite group of Christians other than the apostles, and they were there daily with the people teaching them. Verse 46 adds, please notice, that they continued with one mind. How did they get one mind? How do you get one mind? This doesn't mean that they agreed on every single tiny little detail, but it means they really had one mind about the purpose of what their, their whole community was about. It was a genuine unity. They didn't just put on a smile on Sunday and pretend to be getting along with everybody. There was a genuine one-mindedness here. As they went there in Solomon's portico, they, they stood together physically, but they thought together. There was unity of mind as well. They agreed what it meant to follow Christ. They agreed what their mission was. They agreed how to live. They agreed who to listen to, the apostles. They agreed on those things. Again, by way of application, we could see that the rest of the New Testament uh, encourages us to model this. We are a body of Christ with many members, but one body. That's 1 Corinthians 12, right? We're all different members of one body. We're all joined together. We all have a function and we work together. So we can't disparage any of the members or look down on any of the members. Everyone has a role and everyone has a function, but we're to work together. Ephesians 2 talks about how we're of the household of God. It also talks about being built into a temple collectively. 1 Corinthians 3 also talks about that. The church, the local church is a spiritual building and we're the bricks of it and the Holy Spirit lives in there and we collectively together house the Holy Spirit and we send up praises towards God with the power of the Holy Spirit. But it means that believers are to be together. We're to be in close proximity to one another. There's vibrancy to that. That's why... We always have announcements during worship service, and we say, this week what's happening in church is, you come out on Saturday, come out on this, you know, get, get out of your homes, get out of your isolation, and come together. 
Not just on Sundays, but come together and enjoy the relationships and build the relationships and have connectivity. And that's what spurs on the vibrancy of a community. If, if you're just like, well, once in a while I'll come out to something. Those church people, they're always asking to come out to things. And then if everyone thinks the way you think, then the, the church just grows separate and it grows cold. And that, that can happen. That can happen to any church. You should desire strong Christian friendships. It doesn't matter if you've been burned before. It doesn't matter if someone's been faithless to you before. It doesn't matter if it hasn't worked for you before. This is what God has designed for us, you see. Spending time together daily is not always possible. But spending time together as much as we can, that matters. It should be natural that when you get saved and you start to love Christ, you want friends who are believers. That the friends that are unbelievers, you still do kind deeds to them. And we do good to all men, but we do good especially to the household of the faith. We love them and care for them, but we also recognize bad company corrupts good morals, right? We understand that if you're around an angry man, you'll turn into an angry man. That if you, if you walk with fools, you'll suffer harm. We get that wisdom, but we still want to reach them. But we really love the oasis of the believers, Yes. We need that. You need that. You need it more than you realize. The, the vibrancy of your own personal Christian life will grow stronger like coals stuck with other coals. They just burn hotter. Spend time together. That's a good application. Wherever you can, gather together. The men who work together shoulder to shoulder in, in the facility or the ladies who work together there. Or when you're, you, you go together and, and mothers spend some time during the week and they share what it means to be a Christian mother and maybe they help each other with chores. I don't want to say you have to do these things. I'm just giving examples. You're at the same college campus. You, you look for believers on the college campus and you get together with them because what your professor just told you is out to lunch and, and you need to know what's true. And you want to be with other believers. The NIV application commentary says more and more people are retreating into a private world of pleasure through the use of videos, cable TV, video games, and the Internet. I think this is a little dated. There'd be like 12 other things now, right? But human beings are by nature gregarious. When people taste the beauty of joyous fellowship, they will be confronted with a more pleasurable source of joy than their private world of media pleasure. You think you make your little paradise and get it just the way you want, and that's going to feed and make your soul happy. You don't understand yourself. You're created to be in community. And in Christ, even more so, you're recreated in Christ to be in community. We could use a lot more of that, a lot more of putting the electronics face down. I'm staring at the clock, so I don't have to do it anymore. Face down. Put it away and talk to the people in front of you, you know? Give them your attention. Give them your love. Ask them what's going on. Brother came up to me this morning and asked, what prayer can I pray for you this morning? And I was like, that was really nice. Came up to me and asked me, what what can I pray for you about? That's such a simple thing you could do. It could start a great conversation. It could start a great friendship. We used to have fellowship lunch on Sundays. I love that. I love that. I didn't have to do any of the cooking. <laughs> and I could butt in line and nobody seemed to bother. There's the pastor. He's butting in line. He likes donuts. We'll forgive him. 
And it was just great after church just to roll right in the lunch and see the kids and everyone just interacting together. Ladies got tired of cooking so much every week. That's why we kind of ended it. Understand that. But wouldn't it be great in some way if we could bring it back and help those ladies out when we get to our new facility, when we all get to our new facility? But more than that, you don't have to have the fellowship lunch at church. We could have fellowship lunch in your homes or at one of the restaurants if you want. And just sit there and enjoy that time together. How important that is. By the way, some of you younger people, get connected with some older people. They teach you something. And some of you older people, quit acting like you have nothing to say to the younger people. And some of you that are really, really old, you're the ones that we should be listening to the most. So don't hide. And don't think you're washed up because you're not. All right, seventh and last for today. They cared for their physical needs. This is back up to verse 44, the last part of verse 40, and then into verse 45. Again, they cared for their needs. Look at this. They not only were together, middle of verse 44, and had all things in common. That doesn't mean they all rooted for the same football team. That means they had physical belongings in common. You could tell that because verse 45 says, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Oh, this is so important. All things in common. They mutually shared their belongings. They tangibly cared for one another. John the Apostle was part of this. He saw this community of loving believers. Later in his life, he would write 1 John, and he would say, little children, let us not love with word and tongue only, but in deed and truth. That's true love. He witnessed that among the believers there. And he reminded other churches, don't just say we love you. Demonstrate it with the tangible sharing of possessions. They no longer felt bound to amass more and more possessions for themselves. What happens when you amass possessions and you get into your 70s and 80s and 90s? What happens to all those possessions when you die? Do you know what happens to them? They get cleaned out, right? They get cleaned out because most people don't want them. Why do we amass, the older we get, we get more and more possessions. Why? They realize that's not kingdom thinking. They decided instead they would rather use what they owned to help people who had less. That was why they had their belongings. They tried to figure that out, see, and they, they did figure it out. And then they tried to figure out how do I use this? Some of them sold the land and they had money and they would help with the money. So they had a stewardship mentality we talked about last year. All I own to glorify Jesus, what does that mean? To promote Jesus' agenda, what does that mean? He's building his church. All I own as resources for God's church. They had that Matthew 6, 31 through 33 mentality. It could have been their motto. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, the unbelievers, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom, God's kingdom, and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You don't have to worry about them. If you, if you make your life a life of faith, where you don't have to see the provision of God before you give for the purposes of God, you will see that the Father will provide for you. You will see that. Many people live by the accounting book and by the budget. They don't know what it means to live 
by faith. Notice verse 45 adds, they began selling their property. That's their real estate and their possessions. That's their personal belongings. And they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Can you believe this? Can you believe what you're reading? This is, this is real. This happened. This was not communism. This was not socialism. Some have wrongly used this text to say, hey, Christianity is, is supportive of socialism. No, it's not. Socialism is where the government, the state, requires all things to be common to all people, not, not believers. It's by law that the income is equalized or the result is equalized. That's socialism. Socialism is mandated by law. It's enforced with penalty. Socialism is a cheap imitation of what you're reading here. Socialism does not stem from love. It's not a movement of the Holy Spirit. It's not an expression of generosity. It doesn't lead to open and generous hearts that God uh, uh, says is worthy of his blessing. Socialism's not from God. When the state equalizes everything, it destroys the incentive to work that God even writes about in the Word of God. That if you work hard, you'll have gain. Why work hard when I gain more and then I have to give it all to the guy who didn't work hard? Destroys every incentive to work hard. Can literally kill a nation. It robs people of the joy of building their own business, of growing their own crops and eating the fruit of their own hands that God says is good. Please notice they did not sell all their possessions. It says they they sold their possessions and gave as the need was. It didn't say when they joined the Christian community, they had to sell all they belonged. It doesn't say that. It says they were in there, they looked around, saw the needs, and they volunteered. I'm going to sell this and give. It was not compelled. It was volunteer. The verb selling shows it was ongoing because it's in the imperfect tense in Greek. And that shows they didn't sell everything up front. They sold as there was a need. They saw the need. They wanted to meet the need. They loved. They cared. It was voluntary, not under compulsion. In fact, in verse 46, it shows they still owned homes because they were going to those homes. And we know the giving was not required because Peter says the very thing in Acts chapter 5 and verse 4. They could give whatever they want, but Ananias decided to lie about what he gave. That's why he got struck dead. He didn't have to give the whole thing. He just shouldn't have said he gave the whole thing when he gave the half the thing. He lied to the Holy Spirit. The church respected property rights of individuals and families, just as the Old Testament law of God did as well. God respected the boundaries of property rights so much that he actually carved them out through Joshua and gave them the tribes and said, this is yours. Instead, this was an example of immense common generosity. The Spirit was working so genuinely among them That they willingly sold possessions. They willingly distributed them. Well, you might say, but what happened to their home? If they gave that away, what about their inheritance for their kids? They decided that they would give it away to another another person. They decided they would give it away. They decided their family wouldn't get it anymore. They looked at their kids. They looked at their wife or whatever. And they said, we're going to give this to that other family. Yeah, but but dad, we're not going to have it. That's okay. We're going to give it to them. And we're going to rejoice in giving. And they did that. And that's presented as a positive example. 
This just continues the teaching of Christ, does it not? Matthew 6, 19 to 21. What did Christ say in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Boy, greed is is such a powerful thing. You have to watch out in your own heart quietly. Well, I have to have that. You have to have that because your heart is invested there in that thing. Some people choose where they live because they want to minister. Other people choose where they live because of what they want, and then they decide maybe they can minister. Where's your heart? Is your heart in the home or is your heart in the ministry? Is your heart in the kingdom or is your heart in your own earthly treasures? Where is it? What are you doing? They figured it out. They figured out they're part of this community. This is part of what God is doing. And they're part of it. And they want to live that way. Their heart was in the kingdom. They focused on Christ's kingdom, not their own estates. They gladly, gladly parted from physical wealth to demonstrate care for the poor brethren among them. And over time, some of these Jews would lose their livelihoods, you know. Because of their association with Christ... Eventually, the persecution, Satan stirred up and it came against them and they would lose their job and they would lose their property. Some of them would be thrown in prison and they gladly bore that as well. Christ was worth it. By way of application, we've recently organized a new care ministry here at Hope Bible Church, a care ministry committee. And they're not to do the care ministry alone. They're there just to organize the care ministry of the whole church to help our church, to help our deacons meet the physical needs of our own people, employing our benevolence fund, which you can contribute to any time, especially, I think, on Lord's Supper Sundays. When they call upon you to help, when they make a need known, search your heart, search what God has done for you. How can you meet that need? Caring for the brethren is at the heart of our expression of the faith community. If we profess to believe in Jesus Christ, we must demonstrate our love for one another. What did Jesus say? If you have love for one another, all men will know you're my disciples, right? It's so easy to say those words, but parting from the physical possessions, parting from the money, that's the way that it's proven. Volunteer your time, volunteer your money as the needs arise, help. Sometimes you might not have to give something physical. You could, just, you could give them some time and that could save them some money. Of course, we don't want our care ministry abused. This is not to say that things that are not needs have to be met by the church. This is not to say that if a family is being lazy and they're not doing what they ought to do, that we ought to support their laziness. That's not, that's not what this is saying. The balance to Acts 2 would be 2 Thessalonians 3.10, which Paul wrote and he said, Even when we were among you, we, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to what? Eat. Pretty tough, but that was a church rule. Hey, you don't have a job and you don't want to have a job and you're not willing to work. You're just standing around waiting for Jesus to come back. You can wait with an empty belly. Everybody in the church had to pull their weight. So the first thing, the leadership is going to say, are you doing what you need to be doing? And if you are and and you've fallen on hard times, that's why the church is there for you. You see, we don't turn our back on you and say, well, I'm sure you did something wrong. 
The church is not here to make everyone live the same lifestyle. The funds are here to give as people have needs. And that's how you ought to view it as well. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good. Instruct them to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You might not think you're rich, but you're a lot richer than other people. By the way, I'll close with this. True financial freedom is being exhibited right here. They had, they had financial freedom. I doubt they had too, many, too much stock. I don't know what they had in those days. I don't know if they had a lot of jars of, you know, oil and perfume, or they had a lot of gold and silver stuffed away under a, a mat somewhere. But they had true financial freedom. And this is, this is the best advice from the best money guru that there is, God. <laughs> and God is a money guru, and he tells you, I'll take care of your needs. When you really believe that, and you give generously, and you live for the kingdom of God, you have just achieved financial freedom. You will live like the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what these people in Acts 2 had. They had found financial freedom. They lived it inside of a community. Their community, to some degree, also was a safety net for them. When someone landed on hard times, they were there for one another. Brothers and sisters, I don't know when it's coming. You don't know when it's coming. We have no profit in this church. But we know persecution's coming, and we know there's going to come a day when someone has a testimony in here, and he says, I stood up for Christ, I gave my testimony, I was not obnoxious, I did the work they asked me to do, I did it with integrity, but they fired me because I'm a Christian and I'm losing my home. And we should not be relying just on the state to solve that problem. We should be there for one another. May God increase our heart that we would love the people of God, in community that way. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of these precious believers. Challenge our hearts, Lord, with giving. Challenge our hearts with parting from physical belongings that we might, we might have our hearts trained for life in heaven and in the fullness of the kingdom when it is brought to earth that we will understand we can never outgive you and we can never be in an insecure place as long as you are our heavenly father. That, Father, we will believe that we need to show love towards one another, even in tangible ways, as needs may arrive. Bless the formation, development of our care ministry here, Lord, and that we would all view ourselves as part of that care ministry. For we prayed it in Jesus' name, who loved and cared for our souls. Amen.